We've begun this year looking at the theme of discipleship. We've defined discipleship as becoming like Christ. Uh, the, the process that we commit ourselves to and that the Holy Spirit uh, does in our own lives to make us like Christ. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at growing up like Christ, saw that, uh, that Jesus himself grew up in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, and that we are called to grow up in these same ways, um, physically and emotionally and spiritually and socially. Uh, last week, we talked about becoming like Christ in his ministry. Jesus took a group of 12 and then later uh, larger groups of people, and he, uh, they watched him uh, go about his ministry. They heard him teach. They watched him interact with people, and then he called, and he said, you go and do the same thing. And uh, we saw a model for the way that, we're going, uh, that we are to call, called to go about to be like Christ in his ministry. This week we're going to be looking at becoming like Christ in his suffering. Uh, Last week I began my sermon by talking about how sometimes a preacher must preach beyond himself. And that's ditto this week. Um, To the call to become like Christ in his suffering um, is something that I know that I resist, that I back away from, that I'm scared of. And uh, this is a sermon is a call and a challenge, I think, to all of us. Now, I do want to say something. We're going to talk a little bit later about the difference between guilt and conviction. Um, but just here at the very beginning, I just want to say that for a lot of you, when we talk about suffering, a lot of you are already suffering. <laughs> you're suffering physically, emotionally. There's things going on in your life. And, and now pastor's going to say, well, you're not just quite suffering quite enough. Okay? You just need to suffer a little bit more. Okay? That's not what I'm saying today. <laughs> Okay, if you are here today and you just feel like you've been beat up in one way or another, uh, I pray that, first of all, I pray that you would pray for us, for all of us, as the sermon goes on, that we would hear God's challenge for us, and also to hear today that in your suffering to know that Jesus went before you in it. He is the pioneer and the author and the perfecter of our faith. He has experienced suffering. He's familiar and acquainted with suffering and grief. He has gone for you, before you, in it. And so, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, and we'll talk a little bit later about guilt and conviction, but don't allow this to just kind of be a sermon where there's just kind of the heaping guilt upon our shoulders. That's not of the Spirit. And we'll talk later about conviction from the Spirit and how we can discern between those things. But would you pray with me as we, as we jump in? Lord, we do... Thank you that you have gone before us in suffering, and I thank you, Lord, that you have given us, by your Spirit, the ability to suffer for our faith, that you will strengthen us, that you will give us the ability to do that. And Lord, I pray that we would commit ourselves and be willing, Lord, uh, to suffer for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 begins with the word, therefore, and as one of my Bible teachers would say, if you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Okay, well, right before that is the Christ hymn of the Philippians. Paul has said, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, became obedient to death, humbled himself, became like a servant. Our attitude is to be like that. We are to become like Christ, is what the, uh, Paul says in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And as he gives us that beautiful hymn of Christ and his work in our life. And then he says, therefore, 
Because your attitude is to be like Christ, because you are to become like him. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Uh, we as Protestants have, have emphasized, rightly so, the grace of God. That we are accepted by God only by his grace. There is nothing that we can do to merit his favor, to merit his love, to merit his salvation. And so anytime we hear this idea of works, we kind of we get nervous. <laughs> We shouldn't do that. Philippians chapter 2. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Our salvation, our becoming like Christ, is something we must commit to and intend to and work out with fear and with trembling. Later, Paul is going to say, I beat my body and I make it my slave in order that I might receive the prize that God has given to me. Our work and God's work are not opposed to one another. In the scriptures, they, they come together, and God, God, through his spirit, uses our work and our effort to make us more like Christ. Uh, Jesus used a, a lot of, of, of talked a lot of parables about uh, um, farming and agriculture. And we see in the work of a farmer the way that the work of a farmer and the grace of God come together to make a harvest, right? One of my favorite authors, his name is Wendell Berry. Uh, he's a poet and uh, writes fiction as well as um, uh, nonfiction. He's a great cultural critic. And he has this poem, and I'm going to try to recite some of it for you if I can remember it. Uh, Wendell Berry, by the way, is a Kentucky farmer. He lives in Kentucky, and he's a, he's a farmer, and that's really what he has really feels like he's been called by God to do. And he says this, Harvest will fill the barn, and for that our hands must ache, and our face must sweat. And yet no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled. And then, ah, missed it. And yet, no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled and left to grace. So that we may reap, great work is done while we are asleep. That we may reap, great work is done while we're asleep. Once the farmer puts that seed in the ground, there's nothing really the farmer can do uh, to make that seed germinate and grow. It is grace. But we also know that in order for that field to bear a harvest, the farmer's hand has to ache. His face has to sweat in order to see the fruit. It is the work of the farmer and the work of God's grace and his creation that come together to make this harvest. The same is true of our spiritual life. And we see in Jesus' own life that he modeled certain practices, 
certain work in his own life in order for him to grow up in his own walk with his father. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We have an amazing word about Jesus' own growth in obedience here. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. The writer of Hebrews says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. I want to suggest to you that this is even before the cross. Jesus was born into poverty. There was no middle class in Israel at that time. Okay? You're either kind of the king or the, uh, the, the religious leaders, or you were kind of everyone else. And so Jesus himself knew hunger. In his own ministry, we see he did not have a place to lay his head. We serve and follow a homeless man. Jesus was rejected by his family. We see how his brothers thought he was crazy, tried to come to him and say, Jesus, you are crazy. Get out of here. They are going to kill you. They rejected him in his ministry. He was threatened by the most powerful people in the world in his day. He was betrayed by one of his very closest friends. And through all of this, Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through all of that suffering. All of it was training and preparation for the cross. It was all training and preparation so that on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees, that he would know that his father could be trusted. We see in Jesus' life how he responded to suffering. And the first point that I want to make is that he rested in his relationship with his father. He is a good, good father. Jesus learned that his father could be trusted, that his father was in control. And Jesus cultivated this life with his father where he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter what happened to him, what other physical suffering he may go through, whoever may rejected, reject him, that he was received and loved by his father. This is my son, the one in whom I am well pleased. Jesus stood there in that identity. He said, uh, John chapter 2 says that, that Jesus didn't trust other men. He didn't entrust himself to people because he knew that we are fickle. <laughs> that we are satisfied with filled bellies. And once our bellies aren't full anymore, we'll just go someplace else. That's what Jesus saw happen all the time in his ministry. There's a man who's doing great miracles, a man who can fill our bellies. We'll follow him. But when he doesn't offer that anymore, when he says things like, you must take up your cross and die and follow me, that's when the crowd's got a lot smaller. 
Jesus knew what was in a man. He did not entrust himself to people. He entrusted himself to his father. He knew that no matter who rejected him, that he had his identity as the son of the father. He knew where he stood. Secondly, we see that Jesus forgave and prayed for his enemies. No doubt in our lives, we experience suffering at the hands and at the words of other people. And that happened to Jesus over and over and over again. And we see this great example of Jesus while those nails are being nailed into his wrist, Gary, as you illustrated for us last week. As those nails were being nailed into his wrist and he hung on that cross, Jesus looked to them and then he looked to the Father and he said what? Forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus forgave and prayed for his enemies. That's how he responded to his suffering. The third thing we see Jesus do is he focused on the joy that was set before him. Flip a few other pages to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus knew that this life was not all that there was. He knew that through his suffering, that was something far greater that was waiting for him and for all of us as he endured that suffering. Jesus focused on the joy that was set before him. We are called to become like Christ in his sufferings. I want to suggest to you today that in some ways, because we live in such an affluent culture and where we really don't know in many ways, what it means to suffer, at least like Jesus did and those did in his time. And in many ways, we have to practice suffering. That sound weird to you? <laughs> Sounds weird to me. But I think that we see this model in Jesus' life. We hear it in the words of Paul that in some ways we are called to practice suffering, to prepare ourselves to face trials. I am concerned for us. Uh, I know that uh, many of us uh, believe that it's very possible that very soon that we will face physical, direct persecution and opposition because of our faith. And I am concerned for us that we will not be prepared for it. Because we have been well-trained in the ways of comfort and safety and security. Very well trained. We know where to get our comfort. And we have access to our comfort. We are very well resourced in comfort and safety and security. We're very good at avoiding any hint of pain. At three o'clock, I get a little bit hungry. I get a snack. 
We have a hard day at work, and we know that it would be better for us to pray about those things, even for five minutes. But we medicate ourselves with television and entertainment instead. Pastoral counseling is often helping people to feel comfortable and good in their sin, in their addiction, rather than calling them to work through that pain and get beyond it to real healing that God wants to do in our lives. Our culture has trained us very well in the practices of comfort and safety and security. And so I am concerned for us. I am concerned for us that we will not be able to stand in the moment of trial because we have been shaped and formed and trained in these ways. And so there are three practices that I want to suggest for us to consider in a way for us to practice suffering. Now I want to say... You do not need to feel guilty because you have a roof over your head and food in your refrigerator. There's no need to feel guilty about that. But what we do need to remember is that these things are given to us not so that we can sit back and be more comfortable in them, but they offer opportunities for us to go deeper into Christ. To spend time, not just subsistence living, but to spend time in Christ and growing in him. These are gifts to us, not to lead us to more comfort, but to lead us more deeply into Christ. So three practices that I'm going to suggest for us to consider. The first is solitude. The second is forgiving and praying for our enemies. And the third is fasting. I want to talk a little bit first about this this whole guilt thing. Um, The last thing that I want to do as a pastor is to heap unnecessary burdens on your shoulders. Uh, This is the words that uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees. You heap burdens on men's shoulders and do nothing to help them lift them. I do not want to do that to you. Instead, what I want to do is I want to teach you about the difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt and conviction. These two things are very similar, and often they feel the same way. And in fact, I think then oftentimes they can come at the exact same time. The question is, how do we respond to that feeling of there's something in me that's not quite right? And what guilt does is that it turns our face to hell. What guilt does is it makes us hide in shame. What conviction does is it calls us to go to the cross and it calls us to look up and to be open to the one who has already received us. Guilt makes us heap burdens on our shoulders that allow us to hear the word of the enemy who will say, you are not worthy because you are not good enough. The Spirit's conviction says, you are my son. You are my daughter, and I want to give you every good thing you need to live in the way that I'm calling you to live. Guilt turns our head and our face downward. Conviction turns it upward to the one who wants to make us whole. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16, I think that Paul gives us a great model 
for this balance or this understanding of walking in conviction and not in guilt. Paul says, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this. Paul freely admits, I am not there yet. But he doesn't feel guilty about it. He doesn't allow Satan then to say, Paul, you were a murderer, you were a thief, you were the worst of sinners, and because of that, Christ wants nothing to do with you. Instead, what does he say? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He desires to know and experience Christ-likeness. He admits that he doesn't yet fully have it, and all of us need to admit that we do not yet fully have it, but he pushes on to obtain it. And so I think these are three ways that I want to suggest to you today about how we can push on to attain Christ-likeness as we practice suffering. And the first is through the discipline or the practice of solitude. Solitude, being alone, myself and God. I think in our own lives, we often need the presence, the words, the uh, praise of other people. Being in solitude, spending time in solitude alone with God teaches us that we are not dependent on the opinions and the thoughts of other people. But in solitude, learn that we are his children. By the way, each of these three points, solitude, forgiving and praying for your enemies, and fasting, correspond with how Jesus responded to his suffering. Jesus rested in his relationship with the Father. That attitude is cultivated in times of solitude and quiet with God. If Jesus required and benefited from 40 days of solitude, I think we could benefit from one or two. Jesus was in more demand than any of us. So two suggestions for this. To take a few minutes every day. A few minutes every day to get into the room. Um, we take our cell phones, even noise, into the bathrooms with us, right? Just leave it out. Um, lock the door sit there against the door and just be quiet with God for a couple of minutes. Now I want to encourage you that once a year for a day or two to spend time in silence. I, this was one of the most valuable spiritual experiences I've ever had was I was invited to spend 48 hours in silence. No words spoken and to the best that I could, uh, no words spoken to me. And so that 48 hours was a time of renewing and refreshing. And I left that time better able to listen to other people and to minister to them. 
I was able to sit there while somebody talked to me and not have a thousand things running through my head about what I need to do next, what I need to say next, whatever it might be. I was able to sit and rest because I had spent that time in quiet and in solitude. Solitude is where we learn that we can rest, that we can rest in our relationship with the Father. Forgiving and praying for our enemies. This was the example of Jesus on the cross. We do suffer at the hands of others, at the words of others. This is an important practice for us. If we are going to be like Jesus in his suffering, we are going to need to learn to forgive those who hurt us, intentionally or unintentionally. This person may be somebody that's very close to you in your life who you know right now that you need to forgive, to bear with, to persevere with. Uh, it, may be, it may be a politician, <laughs> our president, who you need to forgive. And the ways that a lot of Christians are responding to those above us right now reflect a lack of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so we need to forgive those who are above us and to pray for them. Fasting. This is a fun one, right? Fasting. And we have really trained ourselves to believe that if we don't have three square meals a day, that we're on the verge of starving. And it's just not true. Fasting reminds us that we do not live on bread alone. Fasting is one of the ways that we, as Paul says, beat our body and make it our slave so that we can become slaves of righteousness to know that every single whim, every single little desire doesn't need to be satisfied. And fasting with food trains us not only to be disciplined in our food, but disciplined in all other ways, in the areas of, of lust and where we take our eyes. It trains our bodies to know that we do not have to satisfy every little inkling that comes our way. It's a way that we crucify our flesh. And it also helps us to set our mind not on the joy that is before us in our little plate— and the joy that is set before us in heaven. Jesus set his mind and his heart on the joy that was set before him. We do take such pleasure in food and the comforts of food and the comforts of otherworldly things, and we should. They are gifts from God, but we must put them in their place in our lives. They can become idols. So fasting just encourage you to start slow, one meal a day. If you've never done this before, one meal a day. And throughout that time, when you certainly are hungry, and when your stomach is going to rage against this thing that you are doing to it, to, in those moments, allow God to, re, uh, to, allow God to be the one that you feed on, to feed on his presence, to remind yourself that man does not live by bread alone. Now, some of you, for health reasons, uh, can't abstain from food, abstain from something else, or perhaps simply just have the very basics, you know, the bread and water or maybe some fruit, whatever it would uh, take you to, uh, to be able to take your medication or whatever it may be. Uh, but commit yourself to abstaining from specific things for a period of time. I just want to say again that this solitude and this Forgiving and praying for our enemies and this fasting is not to heap burdens on you. Uh, don't think that you have to go and apply all of these things, you know, by 6 p.m. this evening 
or tomorrow. Ask the Lord, what is he calling me to? You know, us pastors are really good at giving you, you know, five things that you need to do this next week or ten things that you need to do this next year. And all of a sudden we've got 150 things that we're supposed to do. And, you know, how do I do it all? Well, seek the Lord in it. What is God calling you to do? Maybe it is um, a day or a few minutes or hours of solitude. Maybe there is a person who you need to bear with and to choose to forgive. Maybe it's a person that you need, or maybe it's something that you need to abstain from, uh, fasting, whatever it may be for you. These are means of God's grace. They are not meant to be law to burden us down. They are gifts given to us to help us to crucify our flesh and to become more like Christ. To receive them in that way. And as you go about discipling other people in your own life, as you have other people in your life where you are helping to grow in Christ-likeness, as you practice these things, pass them on then to other people. If you've experienced the benefit of fasting, teach somebody else how to do that. If you've experienced the benefit of silence or solitude or whatever spiritual practice it might be, pass those things on. That is a part of their discipleship. Again, it's not only head knowledge that we're trying to get into people's minds, but it's also practices that form and shape our minds and our hearts and that enable us to resist the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. So your discipleship includes inviting people and teaching people into certain spiritual practices that will help them to grow up in Christ. And so be aware of that and consider what practices have been beneficial to me. God has brought this person to me, and so maybe I'm supposed to pass this on to them too and teach them to walk in that as well. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we do confess that we love our comfort and our safety and our full bellies. And Lord, we, we confess that we often love them more than you. So Lord, I pray that you would bring your conviction into our life. Your words of hope and change and that draw us to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would lead each one of us into very specific practices that you have for me and for each of us, that we may listen to you and obey you and respond. And that as we commit to those things, that you will be faithful by your spirit to make us more like Christ. Amen.